Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. When we read passages of scripture like this, we are meant to be quiet with them and to sit and to lament and to grieve and to feel God's brokenness for the world in its rebelliousness and tragedy. And it's to this time and to this world that the prophecy of Ezekiel 37 is given. And this valley of dry bones, if we can go to the second slide, uh, is Ezekiel's Uh, context for the prophecy and it's a prophecy that is initiated by the Lord in verses 1 to 3 his hand is on Ezekiel he carries him in the spirit to this valley he sets him down he escorts him around it's an unclean place full of dry bones And I imagine as the Lord and Ezekiel walk through the valley, they're walking in silence and death. There are bones, very dry bones, and very many dry bones. The valley is full. This is the site of a great battle, or perhaps a number of great battles, It's a site where Israel's army has been slaughtered. It's catastrophic. And it's made even sadder by the fact that no one has buried the dead. Everyone has been killed. There is no one left to bury the dead. This is the ultimate and shameful fate for a soldier. The flesh has been devoured by birds and animals. And this has happened a long ago, a long time ago. The bones are very dry. Here is death in all its brutality and finality. Here is hopelessness, as we read to verse 3. And then the Lord says to the prophet, Can these bones live? In verses 4 through 8, Ezekiel is commanded to prophesy to the bones. O dry bones, he says, hear the word of the Lord. His congregation is dead. He is prophesying to bones. That's his immediate congregation. There is a secondary audience who will hear the prophecy, which is Israel in exile. Ezekiel's people with the challenges to hope, covenant and future. The Lord God tells him, prophesy to the bones. And as he prophesies, there are sinews and flesh and skin and breath. There is new creation and resurrection. And first of all, in verse 7, he hears rattling. And the same word could be translated shaking as the sinews and the flesh and the skin and the knitting and the connecting and the forming starts to occur, but there is no breath yet. So in verse 9 and 10, the Lord says, 
prophesied to the breath. And in Hebrew, the word for breath is the same as the word for God's spirit, the same as the word for wind. So when he prophesies to the breath, he's prophesying life breathed into these slain. And it reminds us perhaps of Genesis 2, uh, verse 7, where the Lord breathes at the time of creation into Adam, uh, life-giving, interpersonal, intimate, life-giving. God's spirit enters humanity. And by 37.10, an exceedingly great army rises up and Israel's warriors live again. In verses 11 to 14, we have the Lord's interpretation of the valley vision. It becomes a promise for all of God's people, for all of Israel. There is hope. Israel is not forsaken. The nation will rise up. Graves will be opened. The people will return to their promised land. Babylon will be overthrown. All the enemies and powers arrayed against God's people will be defeated. There will be no more exile. There will be a gathering again. In the land, and in 37:14, the Lord will again dwell with his people. Times of cursing will end, times of blessing are coming. God is faithful and forgiving. And you will know, the Lord says to his people, that I am the Lord, I will do it. In terms of Israel's hope, at the darkest time in their history, there is no greater vision in Hebrew scripture than this one. Uh, Here is the future. It looks like life out of death. It looks like hope out of hopelessness. It looks like return from scattering. It looks like being again in the land with God. And so, as the story goes on, and we'll be preaching on it in the next couple of weeks, the exile in Babylon comes to an end, sort of, in 539-38. Cyrus, the Persian king, allows... Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and to Judah and they build a second temple but Israel is not free the temple is not glorious the glory of God doesn't fall on it and the land is not in peace and there is no son of David on the throne more needs to happen more time will pass Israel still awaits a new king a king like David but even greater than David And after hundreds of years, more than 500, Jesus, the greater son of David, is born. The time of waiting has been long. And Jesus does many signs and miracles. But among them, he begins to speak to dead people. And I, for one, in preparing this sermon, have taken for granted the resurrections that Jesus works And uh, I would love to read with new eyes, I guess, Ezekiel eyes on the New Testament, as Jesus brings about in quiet, beautiful and compassionate ways the vision of Ezekiel. But there's so many turns and twists and changes now because Jesus doesn't raise up a great army. He raises up young children. He raises up widows, sons. He raises up people who need mercy and justice. He raises up friends. 
In Luke 7, 11 to 15, at a place called Nain, near Nazareth, a dead man, the only son of a widow, is being taken to the place of burial. The scripture says, moved with compassion, Jesus speaks to the dead man and says, young man, I say to you, get up. And those who witnessed the resurrection that day cry out, a great prophet has appeared among us. And then in Luke 8, as Jesus is on his way to Jairus' place, a synagogue ruler whose daughter is dying. He's delayed. She's 12 years of age. She's his only daughter. And she dies. And with the parents and three disciples, he goes into the room and says to the dead girl, my child, get up. And we are told her spirit spirit returned, her breath returned, her spirit returned, she stood up and he tells her parents to give her something to eat. It's so human, it's so relational, it's so loving. And then in John 11, Jesus comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has been dead for four days. The stone that seals the tomb is rolled away. And after praying, Jesus calls out loudly, Lazarus, come out. And he does, with strips of linen still wrapped around him. Like Ezekiel, Jesus speaks to dead people and they live again. And these are not soldiers. He's not raising up an army. These are young people, friends. And he's motivated and moved by compassion and love, by mercy and kindness for people who are poor and needy. And he raises their dead ones who they love. And then in Matthew 27, when Jesus dies, at the moment he breathes his last Matthew only tells us that the earth starts rattling. He uses a word translated in Matthew, shaking. But God shakes the earth as Jesus' breath leaves him. And at the moment he stops breathing, tombs break open, bodies of saints are raised to life. Even before the resurrection of Jesus, People from Israel are being raised from the dead. And next slide, Lisa. On the third day, when Jesus is raised from the dead, on that resurrection morning, God rattles the earth and the guards are rattled and faint and the earthquake shakes the guards, shakes the earth, shakes the tomb and Jesus is alive having conquered the power of death, and he is the greater son of David and the one who brings dead people to life again. <coughs> what Matthew, Mark, Luke and John tell us Jesus does is a fulfilment of Ezekiel's prophecy for Israel and for nations. So what? 
The resurrection of Christ I want to explore from two angles tonight and invite us into a new reflection on resurrection. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus holds the promise for the future. Our future is bodily. It's not reincarnation, living in another body, perhaps coming back as an insect or an animal or a completely different person. And it's not disembodied, floating around as a mind or a soul or a spirit. That not, that's not an idea in keeping with scripture. The future is resurrection. So perhaps you just want to hold your hand, touch your arm, pat your head or something, and feel your body for a moment, because this body is your future. This body will be resurrected. This body will be restored. You're not getting another one, you're getting a renewed one. This body, which will no longer be mortal, which will be immortal and glorious, is the seed of life forever for you. Now, we're living in times, I think, where people don't really know what to make of their bodies. And there's a whole bunch of new challenges around being embodied beings. Some people idealise their body and even worship their body as though it's the greatest thing ever. And some people despise their bodies and deny their bodies and try to find their inner world without reference to the body. But we've got to start talking about bodies again and about resurrection. Resurrection is our future. And in the future, it's not quite right to say that you and I will have a body, rather that you and I will be embodied. Spirit and body together, living in a new creation where God has remade, renewed all things, the beautiful world of which we're a part today, living again without the curse, without the agony, without the death. The future is bodily. New creation, resurrected humans, and God will make your future from your present from the body you have. The body we have now is not to be idealised. Sure, we have problems and bodily ailments, but it's also not to be despised. It will not be cast away. It's not disposable. It will be renewed. God loves our humanness. God loves our bodily humanness so much that he will make it better and freer and more wonderful than it already is in the future. So the promise of the future is resurrection. And I trust that we will sit with that as we think about our own identities at the moment and recognise the honour, the dignity of our embodied humanness now, which God will liberate even more so in days to come. It's not just a promise for the future, however. Resurrection holds God's power for the present. So resurrection holds God's promise for the future and resurrection holds God's power for the present. 
the word power has got a bad rap, I think, in recent culture, because whenever we talk about power, we're often talking about the abuse of power. And uh, often we imagine power, and we refer to the fact that the Greek word for power is dunamis, and we got our English word dynamite from that, and we think explosions and military might and dictators and tyrants, or perhaps dynamite, or maybe buckets of money whereby we can buy up big and influence change. But when the New Testament authors use the word power, they are thinking about resurrection. They're thinking about life-giving and flourishing. They're thinking about the quiet ability of God to walk out of a tomb on a quiet morning and live again. They're talking about the power to be free from all that beats us down and robs us of life. Could you go to the next one, Lisa? And the next one. I love that image, and it's worth looking at for a while. It comes from a Christianity Explored article entitled Chaos and Grace in the Slums of the Earth. Chaos and grace in the slums of the earth. Um, in our New Zealand days, we often used to talk about messy ministry. Uh, this is more than messy. The article is about a group of Christians ministering in Bangkok in the most dire and desperate of communities. And we're told in the article that something like 900 million city dwellers around the world today live in slums. These are places of disease, wild dogs, forced evictions, crushing poverty and injustice. And the article celebrates the fact that though many people have no choice about living in such communities, Christians choose to live there and minister God's love. Why would you do that? And the answer is because we believe in resurrection. We believe that things can change, that they do change, that they will change, and that God changes things, changes people, changes communities in the power of resurrection. Resurrection power doesn't always look like immediate relief. It may look like slow change, persevering, communal and shared hope. But it is real. It's as real as speaking to dead bones and seeing them stand up. It's as real as Jesus walking out of the tomb resurrected. It's as real as Jesus speaking to a dead girl and she stands up and eats something. Resurrection power is life-giving power. It's why we pray. It's the power of the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead to make things new again. I want you to think of some character traits in your life that are hurtful to others and dishonouring to God. Perhaps some addictions that you're struggling with tonight 
or habits and practices that really need to stop. Perhaps there's some thinking that's really destructive or relationships that need to be restored or failures that need to be forgiven. Can God do it? Because we believe in resurrection, we believe God can do it. God can change those things. It might not be immediate. It might be slow, persevering, communal, shared hope as we just keep walking into the hope of resurrection and praying and trusting God. But because of the resurrection, we do believe that things can change. We're not locked into a world of karma or mere coincidence or chaos. We live in a world of resurrection. And resurrection is God's purposeful commitment to raise up, to renew, to give life. Can you go to the one of Jesus having a meal? I think it's the next one. Next one. Eugene Peterson wrote a book called Living into Resurrection and uh, he asked the question in that book, what did Jesus do after he was raised from the dead? Um, So he stayed on the earth for 40 days after resurrection before ascension. And Luke tells us that among other things, what Jesus did was have meals with people. He sat and talked and ate and enjoyed meals with people. There are ten meals, I think, in Luke's Gospel, three of which are following the resurrection, seven of which precede. I want to encourage us all in a very practical way tonight to share a meal with somebody in the next week or so as an embrace of resurrection. Why is meal sharing an embrace of resurrection? Because the resurrection of Jesus would say to me and you, You don't have to work all the time. You don't have to be anxious all the time. You don't have to give up and worry. The future is glorious. So breathe. Enjoy, folks. Because resurrection also means reunion. We'll be together again in the future with those that we love. Share a meal. Be generous. Breathe, enjoy, because of resurrection. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, you are powerful and you spoke to dead people and they lived again. And the prophecy of Ezekiel would say that your people will live. That the time of cursing and the time of scattering and the time of tyranny will pass. The future is bright. The present is powerful. And in the midst of our struggles today, uh, some of which are endemic, some of which don't seem to change, some of which we just live with day after day, uh, we pray that others and ourselves, in the power of resurrection, uh, will keep calling out to you and keep waiting for you and keep inviting your spirit 
to change us, to change others, to change events and things around us. And as we share some meals with each other over the next couple of weeks, may we embrace the hope of resurrection. Generously, quietly, breathing together in the spirit of the risen Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.